Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Uh, Today we're going to start a two-week mini-series called You Asked For It. We've done this in previous years. We took off last year because I had to get all the way through the Bible in one year and didn't take any weeks off for that. But this year we have two weeks that we have asked you to submit questions pretty much about anything, about the Bible, about a current event, about something in your life, any sort of faith question. uh, We're going to tackle them sort of rapid fire the next two weeks. And I'm excited about today uh, because we have, we're going to go through kind of five, kind of six questions, but three of them are super fast, so don't get concerned when I said we're going through six questions. Um, We're going to basically focus on questions that were submitted that all have to do in some way with the Bible. Questions about the Bible, what's in or what's not in the Bible and why, uh, events that happen that we sort of have scriptural references for, but not all, and we'll kind of look at some of those today. Uh, Questions sort of along belief or the Bible. Uh, And so since we're going to go there, Uh, I want to start out with sort of a baseline of what we believe about the Bible. I want us to have this baseline of where it actually comes from, and we'll look at sort of the journey of the Bible later on, but where it really comes from and what the purpose is. So let's start with this scripture, and then we'll kind of launch off into some questions here this morning. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be perfect, may be complete, equipped for every good work. I have that memorized in a different translation, so it came out automatically, all right? Uh, we'll talk about translation. That's the last question that we'll look at, so I'm, it's funny that I mentioned that. So we're going to explore the journey of the Bible a little bit. We're going to explore uh, translations of the Bible. We're going to look at different things around the Bible. But I wanted to start here because I want us to have this baseline that followers of Jesus, Christians, believe that the Bible is inspired by God. We will talk about the Bible was written down by humans, okay? It is translated by humans, but it's inspired by God. So the words that are there, we can trust them and we can use them. It says here the purpose is really for spiritual training, spiritual growth. That's the purpose of it. Not just to gain information, but to be transformed by what it says. So we're going to look at several questions here sort of around the Bible. And some of these you might think are kind of geeky or a little too much, That's okay. You might think there's a little bit of overload, especially on the first question. We're going to try to just go through it and get what we can and uh, just see what we can find out about the the Bible here this morning. Here's the first question that we're going to look at uh, today is this. When it comes to the Bible, should we accept the received text or the critical text? You may have no idea what that means. That's okay. Now, I don't have the context of more of this question, so I'm going to assume that I'm answering the correct question correctly, okay? Uh, Based on what these words, the received text or the critical text, so the received text is a version of the Greek New Testament from like the 1500s. 
And the critical text is a different version of the Greek New Testament from the 1800s. Now, I could just give an answer on which one I think is the right one or the best one, but I think it's going to be helpful if we kind of journey through the Bible, the journey really of the Bible, to see how we even got to these two options, what, what that even means, where it comes from. And so here's where we want to start from. Our modern Bible, the Bible that you have, the Bible in the back of the seats there, the Bible that the translation's on your phone, didn't just happen, okay? They didn't just fall out of the sky and land in someone's lap. They weren't just downloaded like something from the internet. There's a journey of the Bible that I think we're going to go through for just a little bit. So for, you know, seven, eight minutes here, we're going to cover like 4,000 years of Bible history, all right? So buckle up, strap in. This may seem like a lot, but we're going to try to just flow through highlights of how we got from nothing to what we have now in the Bible, okay? So the Bible, believe it or not, if you didn't know this, started out with nothing written down. It was all oral tradition. So it was spoken. It was memorized. It was all up here, which makes, I think, those ancient cultures impressive. So you have the, the rabbis that literally have the Old Testament memorized in their brain. It's, it's there. They can tell you chapter and verse what it is to become a rabbi, to like basically, uh, even, and even a bar mitzvah. So when it was at 13 or 14 for a young man, um, he has to have most, if not all, of the first five books of the Bible memorized, right? So that's impressive. That's ancient culture. For a long time, there was only oral tradition. Nothing was written down. There was nothing even to write down for a while. Um, and so then soon after that, well, not soon after that, but by the, about the 8th century B.C., they started to write down some, some parts of the Bible, at least the law, um, to have copies of and records of. So there were Hebrew scrolls going back to the 8th century. Um, and then they were continued to be added to over time because the Old Testament is a history right, of, a, of the Hebrew people, of the Israelite people. It's their history. It's their historical document. And history moves in a, in a direction. And so when you write, you can, so someone now can write history up till now, but then someone 300 years from now can, well, is going to include what happens now in their history, which that's how it works. It's the same way the Bible worked. It, there was a process that was added to over time as the more history was fleshed out. And then we're going to skip from the 8th century B.C. to the 3rd century B.C. There's this document called the Septuagint. So by this time, we have all of the Hebrew scriptures that we have. All the Old Testament is kind of done, but it's in Hebrew. And by this time, 3rd century B.C., 2nd century B.C., Greek is the language of the world at that time. Uh, sort of like, almost like um, English is now. And so the Septuagint is translating it from Hebrew to Greek. We have the Hebrew and these different scrolls, these different, you know, books that we have. We're going to put it all into the language anyone can read now, which is Greek. And so that's the Septuagint. That's a fancy word. Basically, the beginning of that word, Sept, uh, is 70. There were 70 uh, people on this original committee who translated uh, from the um, Hebrew to the Greek. This would have been then the addition, possibly, most likely that Jesus would have used, the Septuagint. If he's going to read in Hebrew, it's going to be a Hebrew scroll, but if he's going to re read the whole thing in Greek, he's going to be using this addition, okay? Uh, and then all the way up until about 400 AD, it, that's what we have, until a guy named Jerome, we'll talk more about him later, Jerome translated the Greek into Latin. We call it the Vulgate because, again, the Vulgate is this word that we get our word vulgar from, which doesn't mean dirty, it means common, so Latin being the common language then, much like Greek would have been as well, he put it in the Latin from Greek, okay? So that's where we've gotten in a long period. Of, we've covered like 2,500 years just now, so we've gone a long way. But then after Jerome puts it into Latin, there's not a lot that happens for like 1,000 years. 
that's the standard for the Christian church for about a thousand years is, is the, the Bible in Latin. That's what would have been read and recited at church. That's also then part of the um, issue that some would have with the Roman Catholic Church. This is where some of the extra beliefs would have gotten snuck in to the church, to the doctrine that would not be in the Bible because not everyone could read, period, and only a few could read Latin. And so if I'm the only one that can read the book, I can tell you that's what it says, and you have no way of knowing that it's not what's in there. So that's where some of the issue that then leads to the Reformation, which is where we get a lot of action here in the Bible, really begins. So skip from 400 AD to about almost 1400, 1382, a man named John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English for what we believe is the first time. He used Jerome's Latin standard and ink to take it into English. Now, the official Protestant Reformation, the break off from the Catholic Church, was not for another hundred or 40 years from then. So he sort of started the embers burning of this you know, revolution in the church. Um, he translated this into English because he would be into question because he could read Latin and he's hearing what the teachings of the church are and he's saying there are things here that aren't in here. There are things being said and taught and believed that are not actually in the text as far as I, ha as far as I can read it. And so he translated it into English so that more people then could read it for themselves. So of course the church is not going to be too happy about that. Uh, and so uh, after John Wycliffe dies, the church posthumously condemns him as a heretic so they exhume his body, they burn it, and they throw the ashes in the river. That was his punishment from the church for translating the Bible into English, giving the people more power to read and understand it for themselves. So he gave, you know, his reputation, he, well, I mean, even before he, was, before he died, he was run around, you know, as the reformers would later on as well. Okay, so that's around 14, just before 1400. About 120 years later, this is where we get into the first Bible that's mentioned in the actual question. So we had to get a long way to get to what is known as the received text, okay? So this is by a man named Erasmus who translated it back into Greek. This is crazy. I know we've gone from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English to Latin back to Greek. I know it's a lot here, but he goes back to Greek and he uses um, certain Greek manuscripts that at the time are maybe four to five hundred years old. He's got maybe up to a dozen different um, copies of the New Testament that he then translates into maybe a better version, a more accurate version of Greek. And that's what's called the received text or the, the Latin, the fancy term, the textus receptus. It sounds like Harry Potter, um, but that's not, that's not what it is. Um, so this now Greek New Testament sort of is now the new standard. So it was the Latin text, now this is the standard, and you see the other two on that page. Martin Luther, you may have heard of him, uh, he translated from the Greek into German, because he's a German guy, okay? Uh, if you don't know Martin Luther, like the top reformer, the one that nailed the 95 Thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg, um, he has run around his entire adult life running from the church, they're trying to kill him. Uh, he's sort of like Peter and the Apostles, arrested, questioned several times, um, as far as we know, he's not killed by the church, but probably from a heart attack, from the stress of that, no doubt. Uh, another man there, William Tyndale, he also went from, from Erasmus's Greek into English, uh, and he actually was burned alive by the church for translating the Bible from Greek into English. Um, he, he had finished the New Testament, and he was working on the Old Testament, then he was burned alive. So then one of his friends um, finished the entire Bible that he started, uh, again, back in the 15. 40s, I guess 1547, I think, is the official time it was finished. Okay, 
So again, we've covered quite a bit, and we haven't even gotten to the Big Daddy yet. That's the next one. The Big Daddy, the King James Bible, uh, comes almost 200 years later. Uh, 1611 is when the authorized version, uh, interesting title there, uh, comes out. There's a team of about 47 scholars and translators that came together for about five years, uh, and they used Erasmus's Greek text. That was the standard. Uh, they used the Tyndale English version to kind of go off of, and they also used some other older Hebrew and Greek scrolls that would have been even a bit older than what Erasmus used. So I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but the older, the further back you can go with the manuscript, the more reliable it tends to be. If I can get closer to the original, we have zero original scrolls of any part of the Bible. We have none of them. I would also add to any skeptics that there are no known, what we call autographs of any ancient document this time or anywhere near this time. So the Bible's not unique. Oh, you don't even have the original. I don't have the original of anything, like from you know, more than a thousand years ago, but, you know, I, I, you know, Plato, we read that and teach it in school, and we live by its philosophy, and all these other ancient documents that we just take at its word, it's the Bible's in the same boat. But we do have some, especially New Testament documents that date maybe up to a hundred years after they were written. That's really good, and we have over 6,000 copies of the documents of the New Testament, and then a, th- a couple thousand more of the Old Testament uh, scrolls that date back, you know, up to maybe 800 years when they were written, which for ancient documents, that's as good as it's going to get, better than any other ancient document. That was free. That was off the top of my head, so I'm getting distracted already. That's not good. We're in the King James Bible. I don't know why I got into that, but anyway, King James Bible, um, quite a process uh, and a political process, okay? People are involved in these processes, okay? Uh, So that was, again, the standard, maybe for some still is, that we'll get to translations here at the end in a little bit. Then we get to the other second option in the question. We have the received text, which is the Greek New Testament from the 1500s. Then we get to the critical text from the 1880s, so pretty new. So this is another Greek New Testament because after the King James Bible was finished, more and more older documents were discovered. So again, more older is more reliable. So then the people on this committee made this new Greek text, this new Greek New Testament, from these older Greek documents. And we can believe and assume then that it would be even a a little bit more reliable as far as being older. Then we get into our modern English translations after that, um, and they include even older manuscripts than the critical text. So if you want an easy answer um, to this question, the critical text would be somewhat more reliable because, not because it's newer. Sometimes we think, well, if it's newer, it's better. Not really, not just, not just for that reason, but the reason that the newer texts are better is because they're actually older from the source material. So the newer text comes from the oldest text, which means it's probably closer to the original uh, writing and translation of what was originally there. Um, again, that gets into translation a little bit, but the idea is still the same. So it's not just that simple to pick one or the other, which is better, which is best. There's a journey to it. There's a process to it, but I can't stress this enough. All along the way, God was in this process. That's why we start at the beginning. He inspired the writing of Scripture. He, then he inspired those that would then translate into different languages. They understand this is not, this is not my word. This is God's word. And so it, there is a careful process that goes into any translation of any language, any, even, in, in, even into English. Um, so that's, again, kind of a convoluted answer to a seemingly simple yet not so simple question. Uh, Again, critical, sure, but
but older manuscript is better, okay? So here, let me get to the second question. It's a little bit easier, but similar. The question is this. Why are there extra books in the Catholic Bible? Good question. And it's a similar question to the first question with a similar answer to the first answer. So there are, if you, maybe you don't know this, uh, the Catholic Bible has 14 extra books than the Bible that you probably have. That's what we call the Apocrypha. Uh, it's a Greek word, and it's, it's, I won't get into all that right now. But anyway, um, so some of these books, there's a, a second version of Esther. That's one of these. It's longer. Uh, there's a second book of wisdom, so it's kind of like Proverbs Volume 2 is in there. Uh, there's another book by a guy named Baruch, who was uh, Jeremiah, the prophet, his scribe and friend. Uh, he has a book that's included in there. Then there are two books that are probably the most famous. First and second Maccabees is part of Apocrypha in the Catholic Bible. Now this happens between, so the Old Testament Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah are about 400 BC, and then the New Testament starts basically, you know, John the Baptist, let's say 10, 15 BC, okay? So but 400 years, there's nothing in our Bible, like you go from one page to the other, old to new, there's 400 years on that empty page. First and second Maccabees includes a lot of history in that time period, including where, we, where Jews get their Hanukkah celebration from, comes from first and second Maccabees. So that historical account, those things may have happened, but we don't see them as inspired scripture in the same way as we do the other 66 books in the Bible, okay? So the distinction when it comes to including any books in the Bible is this question. Are the books of the Bible authorized collections of writings, or are these a collection of authoritative writings? The distinction is, did, and this is the complaint, well, this committee just decided these books are in or out. Wrong. This committee knew that over, and every there are different councils and committees and groups that did this over history. There are several, we'll mention a couple, but there are way more. Their purpose is not to say, well, we don't like this book, so we're kicking it out. They're saying most of the churches don't, use this book, never heard of this book. So we don't believe that it would be inspired like these other books that have been circulated and are used in the churches. This is both in these Old Testament books. So for instance, um, first century scholar Josephus and third century Christian scholar Origen, both in their writings list the Old Testament books in some of their writings. Neither of them, again, and this is in that time period, first century, third century, neither of them list these 14 apocryphal books in their list. So it's not until at least almost 500 A.D. when we would have seen these books included. When Jerome turns it into Latin, he did include them in his version of the Bible, but with a stipulation, he put them in kind of a third category. There's Old Testament-inspired, New Testament-inspired, and these apocryphal, more historical books. He included that with his mindset in there. Other people tried to persuade him, no, they are inspired, put them in there, just add it to the end of the Old Testament. He put it in there with this stipulation that they're not inspired okay he used these two terms there's canonical texts which are inspired for doctrine and then he called these others ecclesiastical texts so they're for edification information they're interesting but not inspired uh, we talked about martin luther a minute ago this is the same view that he would have had here's what he says on the apocrypha martin luther says these are books that though not esteemed like holy scriptures are still both useful and good to read now i would i would affirm that and we'll get to that again in a second his contemporaries were very uncomfortable with him even saying these are okay to read. They were like, no, 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 tear it out, burn them, get rid of them. He, they were uncomfortable with even his view. John Calvin around the same time had the same view. Uh, they're historical, supplemental, but not inspired. So they're, they're good to read, they're good for information, good for history, good to get some context in there, um, but not inspired uh, and not really seen as inspired really 
until, even by the Catholic Church, until the 1500s. So they did, again, the, the Latin version from 400 included it, but it wasn't official church doctrine until the Council of Trent in 1546. So um, <clears throat> there's another quote I'm going to skip, so just skip that quote. Um, not until 1546 did the Catholic Church officially include the Apocrypha as inspired. We're going to say it, put it on paper, that it's inspired. So it took a long time to get there. So you can see how it would be, have been added later on. It's not affirmed by the ancient Jews. It's debated at best by early Christians as inspired or not. Uh, it's interesting, helpful, but not inspired. Okay, So that's why we would not have them in our Bible, because we would view the church not affirming those books as illegitimately inspired by God. Okay, So here's where we get to a quick, quick, quick bonus questions. A very similar question. If, if we don't affirm these books, then the other question came in, is it okay then to study the saints? Is it okay to look at them, to read about them, to study them? I would give the same answer I just gave for this same question. Uh, the, the lives of those people are interesting, they're helpful, but they're not inspired. Okay? Uh, there's nothing super spiritually special about these people that we read, although they do some amazing things. For instance, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, he revolutionized science with his five proofs of God in the natural world. So I would say if you want to read about that, read about it, right? If you want to study his life and his theology, read about it, study it. It's, it's interesting. It's helpful. Uh, one other example that I'm actually going through right now. So there's a fourth century man named Augustine or St. Augustine. Um, he wrote a classic book. Um, and I've been going through it kind of this year. It's called The Confessions, uh, kind of adding to my reading time. Uh, and so he, he even quotes some of the Apocrypha in his book, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's great. You know, he, he believed. He was a big one when Jerome went to Latin. He was like, you've got to put these in there. You've got to put them in. They are inspired. He believed they were. He quotes from them. So I'm reading through that, and I don't feel like condemned. Like, I'm, re I'm reading this ancient, you know, Catholic saint. I'm going to burn in hell. No, no, no. It's like, it's interesting. It's good. It's affirming. It's helpful. It's edifying. But it's not scripture. And so the lives of these people are the same way. And even in Acts chapter 10, which we'll get to in a few weeks, Peter, when he shows up to a Gentile's home, they fall down to worship him like he's some super saint. He's like, get up. I'm just a human like you. I'm not God. Don't worship me. And so that's why when we get even into the saint, that's why I don't prescribe praying to them or saying anything to them. Like they're dead. They're in the ground. Their souls are in paradise like everybody else. So everyone's on that same playing field. And so they might have a title of saint this or that, um, but they're just like Peter would say, just a human. Okay. So study their lives, look at them, read their writings. It's interesting, it's helpful, um, but not inspired and not, you know, elevated in the way that others might think. So then we get to the, the next main question. And so these next two questions sort of get into things that some of it's in the Bible, but some of it's not. What do we do? How do we know? So here's the first one that sort of, we know some things from the Bible, but not everything. The question is this, whatever happened to Mary, the mother of Jesus? So we know, you know, about, you know, the virgin birth and, you know, a few things about her, but then she kind of just drops off. So whatever happened, there's a couple things from the Bible that we do know about Mary, okay? We do know that she was at the cross seeing her son being executed. So we read this in John 19, 25. It says, standing near the cross were, Je were Jesus' mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So everybody's named Mary, I guess, back then. That's a very popular name. Uh, anyway, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, that's John writing about himself, you got some courage to call yourself the disciple that Jesus loved, okay? But he does this all the time. Uh, Jesus, he said to her, his mom, dear woman, here is your son. He said to this disciple, John, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. 
So we know Mary was at the cross of Jesus. We know some of the final words of Jesus to her and to his, one of his BFFs, John, his disciple John, was, hey, take care of her for me. It's weird because we know that Jesus had four siblings, three of them brothers, and yet he's talking to this non-sibling, giving him the charge of caring for his mom. I don't know what that says about his brothers and their relationship at the time. He didn't trust them, maybe. Um, but I think part of it is, at this point, his brothers are not believers in him. Mary obviously is because she's there. Well, we can, well, maybe we don't know that she is, but I, I think she's the first one to believe even before he was born that he was who he claimed to be later on. His brothers come to faith after the resurrection. So that might be the reason he's like, I'm not going to trust these bozos with my mom. I'm going to trust this guy who's here with my mom. So he, he gives John, he gives Mary over to John. At this point, Joseph is certainly dead or else Joseph would have taken care of Mary. Um, so we know that John took care of Mary for a time. We also know that a few weeks later, Mary's at the day of Pentecost in Acts, because we read in Acts chapter 114, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So by this time, they're committed. They believe. They're followers of their, their older brother, you know. So at this point, we would assume then that John still cared for Mary per the instructions of Jesus, and she's there with him. But after that, we really don't know. There's some church tradition that talks about she moved to Ephesus. That's possible because we know that John became pastors of different churches, and so if, if he went to pastor, she would have gone with him and lived with him. Um, but we don't know that for sure. Uh, and then later on, sort of in the early Middle Ages, uh, there are some mystic um, Catholics who have these visions of Mary's death. Uh, there's this idea of the assumption of Mary, which is that, again, part of these mystic visions, uh, that when she died, her soul and her body sort of went up almost like Jesus went up. You know, he didn't die, but when he, he did die, then he rose, then he ascended. I'm getting way off track. Anyway, the, the assumption of Mary is that her, when she died, her soul and body both went up into heaven. I would say that is a huge assumption. So they named it correctly uh, because, again, she's like any other human besides Jesus where she, she's just dead, okay? So uh, I know, and that's probably all that we know. Like after Pentecost, we don't know, no, uh, but we can see other things from history that she would have stayed with John as Jesus instructed. That's, so questions like that, that's not a satisfactory answer sometimes that we don't know. But we have to be satisfied sometimes with unsatisfactory answers when it comes to the Bible. Because if we try to go too far into, well, this happened, that happened, then we can get way off into things that are just crazy and weird and not biblical. Um, so that's kind of all we know there. Here's another one that really involves the Bible but is not about the Bible. It's this question. Is it true that the Romans burned much of existing Christian literature around 300 A.D.? The quick answer to that is yes. Let me give you a quick reason of why, and then we'll move on to the last question to close out today. So this question, again, this is not in the Bible. 300 A.D., that, the Bible's done by then, okay? So this is not in the Bible, but it's about the Bible and the text of the Bible. So the Roman Empire is sort of the, you know, the world power at this time. And for a long time, there was a Senate that kind of ruled a group of men, and then it went into the Caesars for a long time. And then uh, in 387, uh, there was a Caesar named Diocletian, He's the Caesar, and he decides, let's change things up. He said, the Roman Empire is so big, so vast, it's too much for one man, one person to rule. And so he 
kind of unofficially split the empire in half, east and west, and he chose one other leader. So he ruled in the east, and he chose another leader to rule in the west. They did this for about seven years, and then seven years into this, they said, hey, we both need kind of vice presidents here. And so then they decided, let's do four leaders to rule the Roman Empire, two on each side. And so they called this the Tetrarch, the Tetrarchy. It's ruled by four people. And so at this time, in around 300, there are four people that are ruling the Roman Empire. But Diocletian's kind of the top dog of the four, especially of the Eastern Empire. So he gets blamed for the increase of Christian persecution around 300. But in fact, it's most likely that guy under him named Galerius, who's probably more responsible for the persecution around 300. So Galerius is the guy that rules under Diocletian in the Eastern Roman Empire. And from what we can tell about him, for some reason, he had an issue with Christians. He had a problem with the church. And so he's the one kind of whispering, saying these things or ordering things because he has power. He's been given influence over the empire, right? Uh, And so Diocletian kind of gets a bad rap, I feel like, uh, for all of this happening because churches were burned, Christians were killed, they were persecuted, they were fed to the lions and the amphitheaters. That was a thing that happened at this time and place. But really, it's probably Galerius, the other guy, who gets kind of off on this because he's not the head guy in charge, uh, even though he seems to be under that. Uh, or a part of that. So, yes, in, during this time, churches were burned, documents were burned. However, it wasn't like the only text of the Bible was in this, in this one spot or in this one part of the empire. They're all over the then-known world. There's copies and texts and versions and editions. That's good that we have those. That's why we have 6,000 that we still have two, three, four thousand years later. Uh, so what we see from that is God protected his word. That's why people would think, well, it's bad that we have copies of this and copies of that, and they, you know, this one crossed the T and that one didn't, and so it's, nah, it's all man-made and made up. No, no, God protected his word. He knew I, I, that we need to write this down and make copies and make copies, because if, if one library is burned down, we've still got others that preserve the works that we have. And so God preserved his word even through the worst of times. Um, and so, yes, that is true, and that's a little bit about that. Here's the last question that we'll look at for a few minutes, and then we'll, we'll be done today. And that's about translation, a question everyone loves to ask. Which Bible translation is the best? Which is the most reliable? Um, and it, like with the first question, it's not quite that easy. We won't go into as depth, in depth of a journey here. But let me just reemphasize, we didn't just get the Bible that we have now. It didn't just fall from the sky and land in our lap. There, as we've even discovered, different languages translated back and forth, different people translating it. Once again, God inspired Scripture but men wrote it down, and then men translated the writing of it down to different languages over time. That's just part of that process. When it comes to Bible translation, there's really three main categories that we'll walk through for just a minute here. And there, there's a word-for-word translation on one end, what we call. There's thought-for-thought, and then there's paraphrase. These are the most three common categories, okay? So word-for-word is sort of what it sounds like, for the most part, as these committees come, and this is a to get into English, okay? This is for English translations, which there are dozens of them. So word for word, these committees get together and they are gonna, if you read Hebrew, first of all, you gotta read it right to left and it doesn't look anything like English, so it's impossible to figure out, okay? Not impossible, but just, I mean, I tried it for a semester in college and I was like, oh, kill me now. You know, this, I'm not gonna be an Old Testament scholar because Hebrew is just not my thing. Uh, Greek is more like English, but they're different in the way that they're structured. Languages differ in how they're structured. The verb should be here in English, but it's over here in Greek. And, there, it, and a lot of times, like, there's no a or the in Greek. 
So scholars literally will spend hours debating, okay, should an A go here or should a the go here? They, they like nitpick because, again, they know this is God's word, not mine. I'm just translating what he said into a different language, so I want to be as careful as I can to get it right. And so these teams that get together, they, that's why it takes years to translate, even from English to English, because they're going back into other languages saying, okay, should they have a different, better word here instead for all the way through, okay? So word for word tries to keep um, the sentence, uh, the syntax of the sentences similar. So that's why if it's harder to read, it's probably word for word. Just, just kind of an easy way to figure that out. We'll get to specific versions in just a second as we close. Then the thought for thought, it's, the idea is it's the same original message, but just easier to explain, easier to say in our modern English. So it's not changing the meaning or changing anything. It just might use different words, or instead of using six words, I can get it down to three easier words to understand for modern English speakers. Then there's the paraphrase. There's only one major well-known edition, and that, again, is what it sounds like. Uh, the, only, the major paraphrase that we have, which we'll talk about in a second, is one person reading the Bible and sort of rewriting it in more of a devotional way. Like, if you were to read this chapter, sum it up in five sentences, and that's what a paraphrase of the Bible is. So, let me say this again. I've said it a few times. Let me say it again. In all of these, decisions are made by people whether it's from one language to another or from English to a different type of English, uh, committees and scholars get together to make these decisions. What sources do we use in the original languages? If there's multiple meanings of a word, which one do we want to use? Uh, adding things like a and the, big deal for them. And so it's a multi-year process of sort of give and take until they get to the closest that they think they can get to the translation, okay? Um, so let's look at specific, I think I've got six up here, yeah, on the spectrum, and you will recognize most of these. So word for word, we'll start left to right, word for word, uh, ESV and, and King James version are both uh, highly, highly word for word. Usually the only reason that the ESV is a little bit further is because it has older original sources that it drew from. So ESV was translated, I think around 2001, so it's pretty new, but it has some of the oldest manuscripts that it used in both Greek and Hebrew to then go back to the original language as close as we can to get to the ESV. So it's word for word. That's the only reason it really is better than King James in that way, because they didn't have as old, they had the, they used the best that they could at the time, but now that we have found and discovered older sources, that's why it gets the nod. Um, the NIV is sort of, I would call it a hybrid of word for word and thought for thought. Uh, they kind of use both tactics here to get kind of a medium middle ground here. Uh, the New Living Translation, which is what I preach from most of all, um, is a thought for thought. And that's the reason that I preach from it is because I don't have to read it and then explain it and then preach about it. I can kind of read it. You can understand it. And we, then we can just run with it. Okay. So it's, and it even says, I even, the version I have at home in the, op the committee has a letter if you have a, a paper Bible, look in the very, very front and see if the committee has a letter about what theirs is and why they do it. That you, most of them will. In fact, the NLT team says this is meant to be read aloud. That's why we wrote it on basically a fourth grade reading level um, so that you can read it aloud easily. It's going to flow. It's going to make sense with modern English. So that's a thought for thought translation. Um, there's the NIRV, the New International Reader's Version. It's of a hybrid of thought for thought and paraphrase. It's mainly used for kids' Bibles. 
So it's in the similar vein of NIV, but just a little bit easier for younger audiences to understand. So I like that one um, for kids especially because it still gets the idea and it's still pretty close to what we know and memorize and whatever version that we have. Uh, but it's great for kids. And then all the way over on paraphrase is the Message Bible. You've probably heard that. Maybe you've read, of, read from it or read it sometimes. It is, again, one man's sort of devotional um, retelling of the scriptures. So um, what's the best? Um, here, uh, the best version of the Bible is the one that you will read. And that's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I'm, kind, I'm serious about that. Um, the best one is the one you're reading. So, and I will say this, the best one's the one you're reading that you can understand and apply. So if you're just gung-ho on King James, but you don't know what you're reading, don't read that one. Find an NIV that maybe is a little bit easier, an NLT that's even easier. I would also even recommend, so what I personally do is I, ESV, NIV, NLT, I, I use those all the time interchangeably both in studying for myself, studying for uh, sermons and stuff, because they're going to say things a little bit different, uh, explain in a different way, have a nuance to them that points something out. Oh, that, that seems more like maybe the original intent, so I'm going to go with that one. Uh, so I'll, I'll, even today on purpose, you may not have noticed it, I've used it three, at least three different translations today on these slides for that reason. So you can see they're saying the same thing, just in a different way. So that I would, I would say get, kind of get a blend. I would, here's the only thing I would say for certain. I would not strictly use the message for your only Bible reading. Again, because it's one person's reinterpretation of the scripture, a paraphrase. So it's not bad. It can actually, I would use that with whatever else you're using because the way he explains things and phrases things is like, I would never have thought of that that way. But I would caution against using only that one, but use it with other things um, as well. So the best one is the one you're using that you can understand, all right? Let me share two scriptures as we close uh, today. And I want to close it by saying this. We've, we talk a lot about history and translation and languages and kind of some maybe highbrow type of stuff and maybe a, a lot of stuff that you're like, okay, please, God, get me out of here today, you know. Um, but the point of the Bible is not just for information but for transformation. Okay, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Bible reading is not an external activity, it's an internal transformation. It's to educate, to challenge us, to encourage us, to motivate us, to guide us in life. That's the point behind it. Not just so I can memorize scripture, although that's good, please do that. Not just so I can know things about it, that's good to know that. But what is it doing in my life? How is it changing me? How is it making me more like Jesus? And that's really what Jeremiah says way back in Jeremiah 31 speaking to his people through Jeremiah says, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. Even Jeremiah, the ancient Old Testament prophet, is pointing us to the internal nature of the Bible. It's not a sword to cut others down. It's a scalpel to help me conform more to God's image. That's what the Bible's always been. And he's also, I'm going to squeeze this in there. I think he's also hinting at Jesus here. I got to get Jesus in here real quick, right? He says a new covenant. 
when Jesus has his last supper with his disciples, he says, this is a new covenant in my blood. Jeremiah says that in that day they will know me already. Well, how? Because I've sent my son to them to be known by them. Uh, Then he says, I'll forgive their wickedness and never remember their sins. We'll talk about that a little bit next week in one of the questions as well. But that's who Jesus is. That's what he does. He forgives sins. He remembers their wickedness no more. So Jeremiah, both in talking about really the internal nature of the Bible, also says, hey, there's one who is coming who's going to do this. There's one who is coming who is going to transform and change everything, and his name is Jesus. And so, again, we've gone through a lot, but I hope in some way you've maybe had an increased appreciation of the Bible uh, and an increased appreciation that God had his hand in every part of this process. No matter how long ago it was or what language it went to or what language it went from or, or what the church leaders said about it or didn't like it or what they approved or didn't approve, like God protects his word. He inspired it and he protects it and he gives it to us to guide us in our life even now. It's not just an ancient document that doesn't have any meaning in your life anymore. It's living, it's active, it guides, it leads, it corrects, it instructs, it's for us. And so may we read it and then apply it. May we read it and have a desire for more and more of it, both what it, as we read it, what it is and then what it does. That's the power and the purpose of God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the Bible. And really, the Bible is proof of your love for us. Because you're not a far-off, distant being way out in the galaxy, but you wanted to speak to us. You want to communicate to us. You want us to not just write it down, not just remember it, but to put in our hearts. You want to personally conform us to become more like you. And your word does that. The Bible does that. And so my prayer is today that we would read it, that it wouldn't just sit on a shelf. We wouldn't just own it or, yeah, I've got three books or I've got it downloaded on my phone, but may we actually engage with it, read it, study it, and learn from it so that it can change us. May we not just read the Bible, but may we allow the Bible to read us. May we apply it. May we live what we learn. May we listen to what it says and follow what it says. It is, as the the psalmist says, it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It's more than just dusty ancient history. It is working in our lives to lead us and guide us where you want us to go. So God, challenge us, change us, motivate us, guide us by your word, by the Bible. May we read and apply and may it change us from the inside out. That's the purpose of your word. And I pray that we would live that out today and every single day of our lives to become more like you. Thank you for those who have gathered here today. Pray that you would bless them and keep them and give us a great rest of our week. Bring us back next time ready for more of you in Jesus' name. Amen.